Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. I want to start by asking you a question. You ready? Who's the greatest authority in your day-to-day life today? Is, your, is it your employer, your boss, maybe? That would probably be the answer of some. Maybe government, an elected official for the kids here, mom or dad. Everyone, I think, has at least one authority they have to submit to, right? Usually it's a few. But our, our favorite authority, I think, maybe, if we're honest, is ourselves. On... On what basis, then, do you make everyday decisions? Who are you following to do that? Right? I, I think today about the sexual and the moral revolution that's been so dominant in our society today and really began more than a generation ago. Most Americans, if you think about it, they don't think about sexuality like God does. And he's the one who created it. For instance, check this out. I have a friend in the ministry. He's a fellow pastor. Not the fellow pastor with us tonight, but he told me about a visit from a young woman in his congregation who told him that she was contemplating having an abortion after having become pregnant because she had peace in her prayers and freedom in Christ to do that. And she explained to the pastor that she read her Bible and didn't find the word abortion in it, in her translation, or no explicit black and white command against it. So she determined it was God's will for her life to abort her child. And in her opinion, it was a a gray matter. Therefore, she had the liberty and the license in Christ to do that. And most of you are probably already thinking, where and how could she get the idea that abortion would somehow be the will of God? And I'm going to tell you how. Ultimately, Ultimately, it's a question of Lordship, lordship, authority, because we are more self-sovereign oriented than God-sovereign oriented, I think. Our thinking is my will be done rather than God's. So we like to be Lord more than submit to the one and only Lord, I think sometimes, and That woman, as an example, she was her own authority. This lady thought God's will for her life was to have an abortion when all she had to do was turn to Scripture, read some texts and Psalms and Proverbs and Jeremiah and Luke and here and there and prayerfully see what God says about life and about His sovereignty in creating it in the womb and and what the commandment, you shall not kill or murder, really means. The idea is, the understanding from this series that we should get is, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Because we've been looking at the sovereignty of God and all the authority that that implies in this series the past several weeks, and that he exercises providence in that. Providence is the provision of his sovereignty, what he does to make his sovereignty happen. 
and in doing whatever he wants and wills over every facet of his creation. You might remember that, you know, we said he's creator, sustainer of his creation. He's sovereign over the nations. That includes elections, believe it or not. That is, he is sovereign over our health, our wealth, our salvation, and the future, all of history. And tonight we're going to close it up by looking at the sovereignty of God over our very day-to-day lives. And this is really relevant because it, it begs a challenging question, which is this. If God is sovereign and he controls the outcome of everything, why should I do anything? Why should I make any decisions at all? Those are fair questions in lieu of what I'm posing here. I mean, the Bible gives some direction on this, by the way. And also, honestly, it gives us some mystery we're going to have to live with, some tension we're going to have to live in. But this text that we have before us is going to help us with this in such a way as it's going to ultimately lead, I think, for us to increase our worship of God and give us, like the other messages in the series, a greater degree of comfort, of confidence, and courage in the sovereignty of God over us, and then it's going to give us some wisdom on how to live under that sovereignty. And we get it here from the book of James, as we just heard read. James is about the working faith of a Christian, right? You've heard the familiar passage in it, faith without works is dead. Um, We don't get saved just to avoid hell and judgment, which is a big deal, yes, but we're saved to do good works, which the Lord's prepared for us, and, and to demonstrate our faith in Christ, and that's the ongoing theme of this book. In fact, it's been thought of by commentators that James is a real good New Testament parallel to the book of Proverbs and all the wisdom you find in there and the Sermon on the Mount, which is quoted three dozen times in this this book. So there's just a tremendous amount of wisdom for Christians here. And ultimately, life we're going to find is living under authority. Whose authority is it going to be? You're going to live under yours or God's? And so there's three parts here. I'm going to break up this text. We're going to talk about the recognition of God's will, the recognition of man's will, and in the failure, our failure to do God's will, what's the consequence of that? So look with me at the recognition of the will of man, which we find in verses 13 and 14. Verse 13 says, Come on now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. That's a very interesting analogy there. The will of man being pictured. It's a picture of man's self-sovereignty versus God's sovereignty with our wealth as an example. And we talked about that in some depth earlier in the series, right? We take for granted, we really do, that whatever we want or will to do with our careers and money, it's set. It's guaranteed. It's just going to happen. And here we think we have ultimate control over our money and our time, how we earn it. And that means we're really, our will is presumptuous. We're presuming here something. What James has in mind here are some Jews in the early church. They were dispersed. A number of them had become successful entrepreneurs, traders and merchants and and villagers starting new businesses in new towns that were propping up all over the Mediterranean Sea at the time. And they're thinking, we got time. We know what we're doing. We got a plan. And it's going to happen. So they chose the place, the amount of money they were going to make, and how long it would take, and they're thinking. So they were presuming. 
and therefore they're prideful. They thought they could do whatever they wanted and whenever they wanted, not understanding the complexity of life and the sovereignty of God. He governs the world. We don't. And by the way, let me say this. There's nothing wrong with planning per se. Being organized is a good thing. We plan this service out in advance. may not look that way all the time, but believe me, we did. In fact, Jesus said, count the cost when he talked about coming to follow him as a disciple, right? In the Gospel of Luke, he said, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Folks, that's a budgeting analogy. That's good. And remember the Jews, they had the same idea about independence and gaining wealth back in their day. They had the same tood, we might say. We talked about this, Deuteronomy chapter 8 in the Torah. Earlier in the series, verse 17 there says, So uh, beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth. So again, whatever success any one of us ever enjoys, folks, yes, is done in large part due to our efforts, our hard work, Yes, but that only comes through the sovereign grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And grace is an unmerited favor, power, blessing from God. So your job, your efforts, your work, and God's sovereignty, they work together, right? The Lord is using our work and our efforts and our will, directing it as a means to His ends, all right? I'll give you the example I gave you last time. How do you grow in grace as a believer, in sanctification? Do you do it, or does God do it? God. But, but don't you have anything to do about it? It's both. It's a partnership. Philippians 2 says, we are to work out your own salvation. You work it out with fear and trembling. And that's on us. That's sanctification. Okay? And then it says in the same next verse, for or because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. That's the Lord. What He does in salvation and sanctification. He works, we work. Both and. And that is in part, by the way, why He saved you. In Ephesians chapter 2, you remember that passage, very important. We talked about it in terms of sovereignty of salvation. For by grace you have been saved. By faith, not of works, it's a gift of God, so that no one would boast. For, listen, verse 10, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So it's all there. Both and, it's not an either or. I'll be frank with you. We just don't know the detail of how he does that with us. Where does he stop? We begin. How does that overlap? He's working. You're working in your sanctification. I don't know how that works. Here's an here's a important note. You don't need to know how that works. We just need to do our part and trust in the Lord and obey. And be careful not to count your chickens before they're hatched. That's what James is talking about. We don't ever want to ignore God in the process of leaving Him out of the equation for things we want to do in life, having the wrong 
heart motives and making plans. In fact, you may want to turn or make a note to go to Luke chapter 16, Luke's gospel. And there is the parable the Lord told of the rich young fool, not the rich young ruler, the rich young fool. And if you haven't read it in a while, you're going to see why he was a fool. So if you're turning, it's Luke chapter 16, actually Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? Nice problem. I got so much stuff, I don't know where to put it. And he said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and then I will store all my grains and my goods. We call that today, as per a uh, reality TV show, hoarding. Verse 19, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Sounds like a pretty good parallel to James 4, doesn't it? But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Yikes. It's like the investor puts all of his eggs in one basket and they have this plan how long they're going to live precisely, the day they're going to retire, how many days it will last in years until they die, and, and then all of a sudden the market crashes, and then what? It's like Proverbs 27.1. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Folks, verse not 14 back in our text just says, your life is in a mist. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Our life is being compared to a vapor. Wow. Think about maybe later this week you're going to wake up in the morning, have a hot cup of coffee, and there's going to be smoke that comes off the cup, right? Or it's going to be very rare this week, but it's possible you might wake up early this week this week on one morning and you breathe and that little vapor and mist comes out, that happens. But you know what? That's the analogy. It's and it's gone really fast. That's the metaphor here for our lives. Psalm 39.5. Behold, this is the psalmist speaking to God, you have made my days a few hand breaths. And my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Our text says we're a mist or a puff of smoke for a little while and then disappears. The idea is we have to maximize the time and our resources now, not take it for granted or presume Again, on God's grace, like Psalm 90 says, we should ask God to teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Not number your years, number your days. Make the best use of them. A person is a fool, folks, who thinks he or she can order their life with utter disregard for God's will. 
think about God's sovereignty? You have to. If God is as sovereign as the Bible says He is, if He numbers all the hairs on your head and not a sparrow falls without His counting for it, how do we expect to ignore Him and, not, and, and then not even treat Him as the authority of our life? Psalm 139, the Lord has sovereignly ordered the length of your life from eternity past. Do you know how sovereign that is? He knew the day you would be born, the day you would be die, the day that you would die, and you can't do anything to stop it. That's sovereignty. Think about this. Think about this. Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The lot, if you don't know, was a kind of a dice in biblical times. It was like a stick or a piece of straw. You would draw the longer one or the shorter one. And it was like flipping a coin back then. The Jews would do it in making decisions when they didn't have a real strong inclination one way or another, or they weren't sure of the Lord's will, which is what we're talking about tonight. In fact, that's what they did when Joshua divided the land the promised land, when they came in among the 12 tribes. And the apostles, the 11 apostles, cast lots to determine who would replace Judas. It was like a way of breaking the tie. And today, so then, if you wanted to render this verse in modern times, you might say, we may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. You're like, whoa, really? Why would Solomon choose to say this? I think it's because he's trying to think of the smallest, most seemingly insignificant, or for some, thinking the most random thing his readers could think of. He chooses that to demonstrate his sovereignty. He's in everything, in one way, shape, or form. Now, I should say the New Testament tells us nowhere to cast lots in making decisions. Why? Because we can find the will of the Lord right here in this book through the Holy Spirit. And that to me is comforting. The Lord's sovereign over everything to me. And that's the only thing that makes sense of this world. Which means, yes, even the horrible and sinful stuff that goes on. Because it's ultimately governed by God. And oftentimes it's Him permitting these things to happen as part of His plan. Because suffering and evil and pain will often test and strengthen our faith. Proverbs 16.1 puts it this way. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. So the eventual outcome of which you plan is going to come from the Lord. So we have to recognize God's will for starters. We recognize man's will. In verses 13 and 14, now we're going to look at the recognition of God's will in verses 15 and 16. And we need to acknowledge again, always, the sovereign will of God day to day. This is the corrective from James on just living solely by our will, right? Look at verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. You know, if you read that immediately, I don't know about you, to me it puts me in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because I think of the Lord Jesus and the torturous evening and holy weekend he's about to go through and Good Friday, and he says to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. Little wonder, by the way, 
why the disciples asked Jesus how to pray. And he said, say, may your kingdom come, your what? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It was never a thing for the early church to not do this, to seek the Lord's will and to acknowledge the sovereignty of God's will in their lifetimes. When Paul wrote the Ephesians, when he was leaving them on one of his missionary journeys, he said, I will return to you if God wills. He didn't say, for sure, I'll see you. I'll see you next week. See you next time. If you understand God, His will, and His sovereignty, that'll become a normal part of your vocabulary. If you've noticed in my communication with you, not every time, but oftentimes, if I send you a text or an email or we talk on the phone to confirm an appointment, I'll say, yeah, I'll see you tomorrow, Lord willing. Because this has become axiomatic to my way of thinking. If the Lord wills. Paul wrote the Corinthian church in his first letter to them. He said, for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Same thing. Same idea. And James is then countering his war of the wills with some of these new Jewish Christians. Verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, he says. All such boasting is evil. Boasting is glory. It means taking pride in something. They boasted from a heart of arrogance. Okay, arrogance in the Greek. The original idea is empty bragging talk. It's a, it's a person that places their trust in themselves, their own resources, their power. And then he says such boasting is evil or wicked. That's a strong word because James is writing to professing Christians. He's saying your boasting is evil. Wow. And it comes from a heart of pride. I want you to see where else, real quick, pride's reflected here in this chapter. Skip up to verse 6 of James 4. He says, God opposes the proud, he's quoting the Old Testament, but gives grace to the humble. Middle of verse 10, or verse 10 itself. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Again, it's a question of lordship recognizing who is the, the ultimate authority of your life. Is it you or is it God? Your word be done, your will be done, or His will and word be done. See, there's only room for one Lord in your life, folks, and it's not you and me. The solution is for us to raise the flag of surrender, which is in essence what you did when you came to Jesus Christ and you repented by faith, okay? You surrendered to His Lordship over your life. I hope you did. That's what it means to humble yourself before the Lord. Literally, humble is the idea of making something low, to bring something low. It, it carries the idea specifically of a personal recognition of your unworthiness, your lostness in front of a holy, righteous God. He's our only hope. And as a result of that recognition, then you willingly, joyfully submit to his authority or sovereignty. So do you understand how that could actually bring comfort and confidence to your soul? The Apostle Paul did, Romans 8.28, right? My favorite verse. God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's comfort. That's a sovereignty passage. We talked about it last time, the sovereignty of God over salvation. Him being sovereign over your life, your salvation, everything else, 
brings comfort to you because it means he always has your back. He's got every contingency covered. Don't you like that? I, I love that. There's nothing left to chance. So all the pain, the evil, the suffering, the injustice we might have to go through has meaning and purpose, even if we can't discover it at the time. Why? Because it's all part of God's sovereign plan and providence for your life. God is good, so His providence is good. And everything He does will be for ultimately your good and His glory. Psalm 145, 17. The Lord is righteous in all His ways, holy in all His works. There's nothing He can do for you that isn't good. It's always going to be good. We may not see it as good. We may not see it as good yet. Many of those of us in the faith who have gone before us, and heroes of the faith, and I think about some people in this room, what they've gone through, they've been able to see some of this. So therefore... If you fail to do the will of God in your life, you fail to submit to His authority, His sovereignty. If you disobey Him, there's a consequence, and that's the failure to do God's will. Look at the text, the final verse, 17. So whoever knows or understands the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. That verse begs this big question. Again, since God is sovereign, over my life, like everything else, because that's what the Bible says. And being that the chief aim of man, the meaning of life, is to glorify God, enjoy Him forever, right? 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, you do to the glory of God. How do I do this will for my life if I don't even know what it is? That's a fair question, right? right? You might say, Pastor, I get the part about God's sovereignty over my life. And I'm supposed to submit to his will, do his will, not mine. I just don't know what his will is. Join the club to an extent, right? You might be thinking, who do I marry? When? What job do I take? Where do I live? How do I educate my kids? What ministry do I get involved in? I can't find that in the Bible. So how do I find God's will? Well, verse 17 implies that we can find His will, because if you know it and don't do it, it's sin. So to do that, I'm going to help you. You need to understand two realities so you can live in God's will and for His glory while submitting to His sovereignty in your life. Here's number one. I want you to understand what is God's sovereign will, His secret will. God has a secret will. Where do you get that from? I also get it from the book of Deuteronomy, amongst many other places. It's toward the end of Deuteronomy, and some of you have heard it quoted here before. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Listen carefully. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. Ah, that's a clue. God is totally free, by the way, for starters, you are not. I am not. He's infinite, we are finite. That means we're limited, right, by our nature, by our humanity. We tend to do what feels good to us at any given moment, right? God does what is right, what is right, because He is right, He's always right, and what He wants to do and will is always right. 
And because he's God, we have to deal with something. He's not obligated to tell us everything he wants and wills to do. He won't. And we couldn't even handle it if we did, as Isaiah said. His ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. So as the sovereign of the world, he governs it and wishes to govern it as he wills. And guess what? He doesn't check with us first. Is that surprising to us? He doesn't have to. This text is taught of, if anything, we're to check in with him first, right? Verse 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will go here, go there, live and do this or do that. Mm. He's gracious and merciful because of that, and he's loving. Check it out. He's chosen to give us something. His favored creatures, he's given us something to help with finding out his will. That's the second point here. God's revealed will. He has a secret will. His will of decree, theologians call it. He just ordains it, orders it. We don't know what that is till it happens. But then there's a revealed will, his preceptive will, you might call it, or a will of desire. That means God has revealed, as Deuteronomy said, all he wants us to know. There's such a thing as TMI for human beings. Okay? Too much information. But there's lots of information he's given us. I mean, Psalm 19 says that's where joy, salvation... Wisdom is found, right? The scriptures are, what did we learn? All sufficient. Remember our last series in 2 Timothy? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, for all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Poof, it's God breathed, and it's profitable for teaching, doctrine, instruction, and righteousness, rebuking that the man or woman of God would be thoroughly equipped or mature in every way. That sounds like a pretty inclusive statement. I like the way the Westminster Divines put it, the Westminster Confession. They say this about sola scriptura. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and not necessary consequence may be deduced or studied from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Did you get that? In other words, one way, shape, or form, here, the Word with the Spirit, you can figure out God's revealed will for your life. So what does the Scripture say about God's will for us? There's information here. You know who helped me with this many years ago when I was a young Christian pastor and author, John MacArthur? He did a series that caught my ear very early in my life. And it was called, If God's Will is So Important, Why Can't I Find It? It's an odd title for a series. But I got hooked on it because in that series he did an exhaustive word study. And I've shared this with many of you before about the will of God. And he found six major answers, six major texts in the New Testament directly from God's Word. Check this out as to what his will is for everyone in the room because remember the Bible's written for everyone you can't look in your concordance in the back and find out this is what Robert's supposed to do with his life or George it's not how it works but there's a revealed will that is for everybody guess what the first one is God's will for your life is that you be saved wow 
1 Timothy 2 desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God's revealed will is that everybody, as per his command to repent in Acts 17, everybody would be saved. That's his revealed will. I'm not talking about his secret will, because we know not everybody will be saved. His revealed will is that everyone would be saved. Number two, you'd be saved, you'd be spirit-filled. Spirit-filled, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, which is done generally by the means of grace, abiding in Christ with the word, with the prayer, with the fellowship of the body, observing the ordinances of the faith. So you're saved, you're spirit-filled. Third, sanctified. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. God's will is that we all be set apart or holy. It says in that verse, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. So there is one way in which you can obey and submit to the authority, the will of God. Fourth, and by the way, this process of sanctification is a process. We call it progressive sanctification. It doesn't happen overnight. John Newton gave us that classic amazing grace. He said this, I am not what I might be. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Can you say that? Next, you're saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, and submissive. First Peter 2. Submissive. Not only to the Lord, we are to submit to the governing authorities. Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, we are to submit to our employers, each other, wives and husbands, etc. That's the will of God for everyone in Christ. Next, this is the one that's most difficult for us. It is God's will that you suffer. It is God's will that you and I, everyone in this room, to whatever degree His sovereignty and providence allows, we are to suffer. For what credit is it, he says, if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. Right? He says that because that's justice. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God, for to this you were called. Meaning, that's His will for you. And then finally, we did it a lot last Thursday, I guess it was, but maybe not as much as we should every day, saying thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5 says it is the will of God that you say thanks in everything. I'm still working on this, okay? Progressive sanctification. I'm still trying to thank the Lord for COVID. I haven't figured out how to do that yet. But I'm working on it. Everything. And some of you might say, oh, great. I get all this, and I'm going to work on living that out. But pastor, you still didn't tell me, God didn't tell me who I should marry or what college I should go to or what job I should take. Who I should have voted for if I wasn't sure in the last election. In terms of the revealed will of God, look, all we have are direct commands of Scripture, and we have indicatives like these, and we have principles, okay? So guess what? Everything else depends on you. I think you're going to like this. I think you're going to like this. What we are to do is dig into the Scriptures. When we have to make a decision, when we have to live day to day, we eat Bible, and then if you are in the revealed word and will of God, you know what God says? Do what you want. 
do it. You're looking at me like I'm nuts, I'm sure, right? But that's, what? Don't take out a fleece? Cast lots? Seven easy steps? No. Because God has given us believers and dwelt with the Holy Spirit, His Word, a mind, and a conscience to navigate our lives day to day on what He has not explicitly revealed in His Word. As Romans 12, 2 would say, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you would discern what? What is the will of God? What is good and acceptable and perfect? You just heard it. God's not going to tell you in this book who to marry. It's not going to happen. You have to pray. You seek good counsel. You walk with the Spirit. If you are saved, Spirit-filled, sanctified, submissive, suffering and saying thanks, you're already in the revealed will of God. Everything else is you. We pray as if everything depends on God, which it does. And we have to do everything depending on us. Psalm 37. It's one of my favorites. Because it is so powerfully echoes, parallels this text and the others. We're talking about the will of God. Psalm 37.4 says, Delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. For me, that's one of the most powerful promises in all the Bible. But it's conditional. You have to delight in the Lord. Then He will give you the desires of your heart. So if you know what delighting in the Lord means, you're halfway there. Verse 5. Then commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him. And listen. And He will act. Isn't that interesting? Delight in Him. Trust in Him. He'll give you desires of your heart. He'll pull it off. He will act. So there you have the sovereignty of God and the will of man, human responsibility, side by side, working together. So again, I want to be clear about this so there's no misunderstanding. If you are already in Christ, in the revealed will of God, as revealed in the Scripture, and if you're being filled with or led by the Spirit, walking with the Spirit, keeping step with the Spirit, as Paul says, you can, check this, you can do and decide whatever you wish, why or desire, because your desires are His. He's putting them there in you. He's giving you your desires, being His desires, if you are saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, submissive, suffering, and saying thanks. You're delighting in Him already. You're already seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness, Matthew 6. And He's going to tell you in your conscience what you are to do. I don't know about you, I find that tremendously freeing to me. But again, you have to understand the conditions of this promise. Because if not, you'll go off the deep end. All the desires of my heart, whatever I want. Well, Heads up, this goes to the introduction of the message, right? Uh, abortion, that's okay. That's not mentioned in the Bible. Um, I don't see the word, so I guess that's all right for me. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I would ask that woman, are you saved? Are you spirit-filled? Are you sanctified, submissive, suffering, saying thanks? Do you know what the revealed will of God is on that issue? Ah, we have to check ourselves. 
So, as someone once said, to know the will of God is the greatest knowledge in the world. To do the will of God is the greatest achievement in the world. Amen? Have you recognized your will tonight in contrast to God's will? And do you understand what it means to fail to do God's will? And I hope we've helped you just tidying up this series, this six-part series in the sovereignty of God here over your life about the freedom because of the grace and mercy the Lord offers you if, if you are in Christ and obeying His revealed will. Don't worry about obeying His secret will. You're not going to know what it is. You're not going to do it. You don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. You are responsible to obey His revealed will, which we find in the Scripture, with the Spirit, making wise application. I'm just going to close with just an idea from the New Testament. The story, again, take you back to Jesus about to enter Jerusalem. He's at Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem, in John 11. And there's the story of Lazarus, who died, and his sisters, Mary and Martha, right? Lazarus was sick. Sisters knew who Christ was. They knew, and they loved him. He loved them. They were like best friends. He knew that he could heal her, right? They had faith in that. So they sent word to Jesus for help, right? He didn't come in time. In fact, when Jesus heard the news, he intentionally delayed his coming. He waited two days just to make sure the body would start to decay. And Lazarus died. So can you imagine the sister's sorrow there at the moment? They're not thinking about the sovereignty of God at that moment. They're thinking about their loss, understandably. Could it be that those are the same kind of reasons he has for allowing our disappointments too sometimes and what we go through? Is there a greater meaning and purpose? Because no matter what we've lost or whom we may lose one day, we still have good things in Christ, right? We have hope in Christ, the hope of heaven, hope of glory. That's what it means to have confidence in the sovereignty of God. Comfort, courage, and confidence. You just walk with Him, and you talk with Him. You live life. You know He's right beside you all the time. And He's going to make sure, He promises, He's going to make sure at the end that your life is going to be good and it's going to be glorified for His glory. Amen? So let's pray. Lord, we've been challenged very much in this series on Your sovereignty, and I understand, as we've said, why some struggle with it when they come face to face with it, because it means surrendering our will and our sovereignty. It means acknowledging you as Lord of our Master, not in one thing, not in three things, but in everything completely, whether it be our salvation, health, wealth, country, nations, and our day-to-day -day life. I would not have it any other way. It is the only thing that makes sense of a sin-cursed world because there is a day coming soon when Lord Jesus comes and writes all wrongs. All promises are kept, prophecies are fulfilled, and God's people are joyous and in paradise with no pain, tears, or suffering forever if they turn to you and trust in Christ. 
As Spurgeon said, Lord, whatever may be said about the doctrine of sovereignty, it is written in your word as with an iron pen. There is no getting rid of it, and there it stands. We're grateful for it, Lord. We're grateful for the Spirit teaching us and leading us in this series, Lord. We pray that our people during these very difficult times have been encouraged, have been exhorted, have been edified, even have a renewed sense of joy that there's ultimate purpose and meaning in what you have allowed, what you are directing, and what you were doing in the year 2020 is difficult and challenging for us as it has been. We have hope. We have a future. We're thankful. And so, Lord, help us to live in that recognition and trust and obedience of your will and your sovereignty day to day. And, Lord God, if there is anyone listening that has not begun living under your sovereignty because they have not begun to surrender their life to you, their soul, their heart to you. May they do so today. May someone listening, Lord, may many listening, Lord, make today the day of salvation for them in which they would look at you and see themselves as the sinners they are worthy of the final judgment to come, that they would want to escape that judgment and have abundant joy and peace now in this life as well as to come. And that they would turn to you and trust in Jesus alone, by faith alone, in having in him, having paid their payment, their penalty, for their sins, by his blood, his death, so that they would be forgiven. I pray that would happen today, Lord. We pray the Holy Spirit will work as only the Spirit can, using the words of this book and the words of your people preaching it and sharing it as they show Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurch.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage. 